0: Father in heaven, we come before you thanking you for the privilege to study your word. And I thank you because when we ask for your Holy Spirit, you send your spirit. This evening, we come before you acknowledging our need for you, acknowledging we're sinners in need of grace, acknowledging that we have nothing good, nothing righteous. And we come before you asking that a miraculous transformation of heart and mind would occur that you'll take away our stony heart, and you'll give us a heart of flesh. I pray that I'll hide behind the cross, that you'll hide me behind Christ, and that this evening they will hear none other than Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, speak. I pray, O God, that as we study, especially the great controversy, that we will see good amidst turmoil. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. My good friend Cosman asked me to share a few months ago, we were given the topic, and we can choose from a list of topics and the topic that immediately jumped out to me was the great controversy between good and evil for many reasons. Um, part of it is because of my background. I'll give you a little bit of background about myself. I did not come from a picture perfect family. my my family has a lot of sins, my past, and when I was born, my mother went to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 7, and she saw the great controversy, and she named me Michael for that very reason. To, she was hoping that I would overcome the past of our family, the past of the sins. And so, I come before you as someone who has been transformed only by the grace of God, And I come before you also with a message to be able to share with you about the great controversy, something that I've seen in my life, something that I've experienced. This evening we'll be exploring that controversy. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and go into our Bibles, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 12. I'm sure many of you have studied this book, and we know that Revelation chapter 12 is the climax, it's the fulcrum, it's the apex of the book. There's a chiastic structure in Revelation, and chapter 12 is the climax. It's the war between good and evil, it's the war between Michael and Satan. Verse 7, here's what the Bible says. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. And Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Those three verses are pregnant with meaning, and to be able to fully understand what happened, it's helpful if we go to the writings of Ellen White. And what I have done is I've compiled a list of quotes that we'll be going through from Story of Redemption and from Patriarchs and Prophet. What I've also done is is to help understand this story and humanize it, I've also paralleled some points by using the story of Saul. Quote number one is where we're going to start. Quote number one is where we're going to start. It's found in Story of Redemption, page 15, paragraph 1. They were discontented and unhappy because they could not look into His unsearchable wisdom and ascertain His purposes in exalting His Son and endowing Him with such unlimited power and control. If you read this section in the Story of Redemption, you will find... Satan and his angels, that they, they have a meeting. And what takes place is, what has happened actually before they have this meeting, is God calls this meeting with all of heaven. And He, in front of all the angels, He looks at Jesus, He looks at His Son, and He tells all the angels that His Son... Jesus would be equal in power, and that they would be creating an an entirely new planet called earth. And when Satan heard this, he was jealous. Why wasn't he called into this meeting? Why wasn't he given the same powers as Jesus? And during this time, after this meeting, Satan gathers the angels, and and I'll be summarizing a lot of the points and hopefully trying to help us piece together this, this war of what takes place. Well, Satan calls together all the angels, and Lucifer insists that he was worthy of the same power as Jesus. He calls the angels together and says, Look at me. I'm the one you listen to, I'm the one you report to. I have the best voice, I'm the most beautiful, I'm the most talented. And at this time there were loyal angels the story of redemption records who says to Satan Lucifer repent. You are thinking of of horrendous thoughts repent. What Lucifer then did was to the loyal angels and I'm using the exact word that he calls them he calls them slaves. The loyal angels told some of the angels that they were in the... Uh, then there were other angels who were in the Valley of Decision. The loyal angels told them to close their ears. And it was after this meeting that Satan realized he had uh, a following. And he went from Lucifer, or Lightbearer, to Satan, which means adversary. At this time, the loyal angels promptly went to the Father to tell him about the mutiny. They found him in a meeting already with his son, and go, they were going through the game plan of what they were going to do, and God, God at that moment could have hurled him out of heaven, but they were, and I'm quoting, going to give the rebellious an equal chance to measure strength and might with his own son and be manifested to all. Now, I don't know if some of you have seen the trailers for The Record Keeper. I'm not here to to talk about what it means or how good it is or the cinematography. But we were, a group of us were in the general conference in November. And while we were waiting for our meals, you know, the general conference, whenever uh, there's a huge meeting, they can't accommodate everyone in their cafeteria. And so a group of us, we, what, what they were doing is they said, okay, you have a, a list of numbers and they are dismissing us by rows. And for those of you who can't eat your meal yet, we have a treat for you. We have uh, we're going to let you watch uh, scenes from the Record Keeper. So he said, "Okay, this is going to be interesting." And so they 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 play the first scene of the Record Keeper, and I'm telling you, this movie showed some r- crazy violent scenes. And as I was looking and watching at that, first off, I, I thought, "Wow, this the, the cinematography is really good. This looks like some of the Hollywood stuff I used to watch, and when I when I lived in Hollywood." And the other thing my thought was, was how we play down the great controversy between Michael and the dragon. But according to this quote, when Ellen White says that they would test might against might and strength against strength, you better believe that it was violent. You better believe that there was a heavenly war that took place and it wasn't just words. That there was force that took place. That there was an an actual overthrow, an actual throwing out of heaven. The the, The first point I want to talk about this evening regarding this story was that sometimes God is going to lead you into a situation and you're not going to know why. The reason why there was controversy was Lucifer was upset that God would talk about earth and God would talk about these plans and would not reveal it to him and the other angels. Satan wanted to know the future. He was desperate to know the outcome of the battle. Uh, Excuse me, uh, Saul also wanted to know the future. If you know the story of Saul he was going to fight against the the Philistines. And by the way, he had defeated them before. He wanted to know the outcome of the battle between the Philistines. And so what he did, of course, as we know the story, is he, he went and he consulted with the witch of Endor. And Ellen White has an entire chapter dedicated to this In the devotional book, Conflict of the Ages, this chapter is called God's Secrets, and she masterfully shows the folly when we try to know the future when God has not revealed it to us. Quote number two and three. Let's go ahead and look at that. This is from Conflict and Courage, page 173. Why do we go through situations in life when we may not know the future, the outcome? We may not know what's happening next. There are many who become restless, when they cannot know the definite outcome of affairs. They cannot endure uncertainty. And in their impatience, they refuse to wait to see the salvation of God. Apprehended evils drive them nearly distracted. They give way to their rebellious feelings and run here and there in passionate grief, seeking intelligence concerning that which has not been revealed. But when they neglect the means that God has ordained for their comfort, and resort to other sources hoping to learn what god has withheld they commit the error of saul and thereby gain only a knowledge of evil i don't know what each person is going through in this room but i find that sometimes in my life i'm at a place a crossroads where i don't know what's next and as humans i think it's human nature i think it's only natural we where we want to know what's next How many times has someone come up to you and said, so what are you doing next? What are your plans? And there are many times when we want to know what's next. I think that's human nature. We want to have everything planned out, A, B, C, D. And if plan A doesn't work, we have plan B. But what I find when I study the Word of God is God brings us to these points where we don't know the next step. And it's during this process where we don't know the next step, where God learns, or God uh, uh, refines our character and we learn to trust Him. And when I read this quote that, that I, I read to you, where even the angels did not know what was next, they did not know the outcome, they did not know the future, they did not know what earth would, be, uh, would look like, God basically had a meeting with the angels and said, it's none of your business. My son's in charge, and it's none of your business. And if God has the audacity to do that to angels, you better believe he does it to you and me. But what do we like to do as humans? We like to take matters into our own hands. We like to to know the future when the future has not been revealed. And time after time, you see this mistake happen. You see what what Jacob did and and Rebekah did. You see that they took the matters in their own hands. And the first point that we can learn in the story of the great controversy is Satan and his angels, they took matters into their own hands. They wanted to know the will of God and they wanted to be part of it even though it was not the will of God for them to be part of planning and creating this earth. What happens next is angels were marshaled and brought before the throne of God. Ellen White says, in rank and order. Satan publicly declared they had a town hall meeting. And Satan publicly declared to the father of his dissatisfaction towards his son. God promptly told him that he was not worthy to occupy a place in heaven. Satan then pointed to all the angels nearly... Now, some people uh, just remember this number, that a third were kicked out of heaven. Do you know how many sympathized with him? It was nearly 50%. Ellen White says nearly half the angels in heaven sympathized with him. A third were kicked out, but half of them nearly sympathized with him. What happens is Lucifer, who is now called Satan the adversary, he points to nearly half the angels. And then he says this in quote number four. Will you expel these also and make such a void in heaven? He then declared that he was prepared to resist the authority of Christ. And to defend his place in heaven by force of might, strength against strength. What happens next, beloved, the next point is not only did he want to put matters into his own hands, the next thing he does is transgression of God's law. Quote number five says, Their high and happy state had been held upon condition of obedience to what? To the law. In heaven, them being holy, them being happy, was conditional upon obedience to the law which God had given to govern the high order of intelligences. Now when we look at the story of Saul and we look at him, if we backtrack, if we look at the very beginning of his administration, we're brought to the scene of the Malachites, and God has specific orders for Saul. God, uh, through the prophet, Samuel tells Saul, God has made it very clear that you are to destroy the Malachites and take everything uh, and destroy everything, the sheep, the cattle, everyone. And what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 15? Partial obedience. He doesn't fully obey. and what a Samuel will tell him in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Does anyone remember? It is a better to obey than to sacrifice. Point number two that I find when I study this story, the reason for the great controversy was transgression against the law of God. The reason for, for Saul being dethroned from Israel is because of transgression against the law. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, I don't know where you all are in your your walk. Maybe some of you, you've grown up in the church. Maybe for some of you, you've just recently decided to become a Christian. Tell you a little bit about myself. I was born and raised, Seventh-day Adventist, born in Loma Linda Medical Center, went to Loma Linda Academy. So I knew a lot about the Adventist faith, but deep down, I wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. I didn't know the Three Angels message. I didn't know who Doug Batchelor was. I didn't know any of those things. I grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist in name, but I was very nominal. And I remember I had a strict grandfather. And what happened was my, my, my grandfather, he was a convert to Adventism. It's a pretty fascinating story in and of itself. He lived in the Philippines, and, and missionaries lived next door. And every morning at 5 a.m., these Seventh-day Adventist missionaries would sing hymns. And one day... His father, great grand, is my great grandfather, he went and he asked the missionary, he says, I notice your, your dedication and zealousness to your faith, what are you? And that's when the missionary said, We're, we're Seventh day Adventists. And at that time, my great grandfather goes to the family who were staunch Catholic and says, From now on today, you're all Seventh day Adventists. No one knew why, no one knew anything about what it was. But my, my grandfather, he became a staunch believer and he, they helped start churches. And my grandfather, God bless him, he he would quote to me the law, and talk to me about Ellen White. And as a rebellious young kid, I thought that the the law or Ellen White or the Adventist beliefs were nothing but a list of laws. There's this one illustration that I think of. There's this there was this truck driver, and there's this woman, and they were at a gas station. There's this big, huge Mack truck. And there was this woman, and she noticed something suspicious about this driver of a Mac, who, who drove this 18-wheeler truck. She got in the car, and the truck driver was trying to stop her and was trying to say something, and she got terrified. This is, you know, at one of those truck stops in the middle of nowhere. Immediately, she was, abs- she was scared and frightened. She was by herself. She gets in her car. The truck driver then jumps into his car. She bolts, and she runs, and the truck driver goes after her. She is now petrified for her life. An 18-wheeler, big truck driver. These guys look pretty intimidating sometimes. Was was after her. She blew through stop signs. He blew through stop signs. She blew through red lights. She would wait till it was almost yellow and run right through it, hoping that he would get caught up in the traffic, and he went right through it. She went on the freeway. He went on the freeway over and over she tried to lose this guy and finally she said there's no way that I can lose this 18-wheeler she goes to the most public place that she can find and as she stops the truck driver stops she opens her door he opens his door and she is absolutely terrified that this guy is gonna do something harmful to her and as she is running away from her car screaming help help the truck driver goes to her car opens the back door Pulls out a guy who had a knife. You know, sometimes people see things from an elevated viewpoint, and they're trying to help us. And we, have a, we as humans sometimes have a misunderstanding of God and His character. And growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist, I thought that the rules were just there to, so I couldn't have fun. And I thought of pastors and teachers and my parents as that truck driver trying to get me. When really what they were trying to do was protect me. And that's what we see about God and his love and his character. The laws that he has for you and for me are so we can be happy. Are so we, so we can live in, a, in an environment where we can experience peace and prosperity. But we misinterpret the law and we misinterpret God and his character. And instead of running to God, we're running away from him. We know what happens next. I'm sure many of us have gone through Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. We know what happens. We know what Satan says, that he wants to ascend to be like the Most High. Quote number six in your handout is what really got me. I'm going to be sharing some quotes now that was uh, eye-opening. It was enlightening to me about this story. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 39, He had not... ...at that time fully cast off his allegiance to God. Though he had left his position as covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and, and, and satisfied to fill the place appointed him in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office. The time had come for a final decision. He must fully yield to the defi- divine sovereignty or place himself in open rebellion. He nearly reached the decision to return, but what... Mm. But pride forbade him. It was too great a sacrifice for one who had been so highly honored to confess that he, that he had been in error, that his imaginings were false, and to yield to the authority which he had been working to prove unjust. Could you imagine this point? In fact, Ellen White says when Satan was considering coming back, he heard the angelic host singing, and as they were singing, the chords touched a, a part of his heart. And as he was contemplating if he should return, he thought about having to go up in front of everyone and admit he was wrong. And he couldn't do it. As you know, many of you, I'm sure, are in leadership or part of different ministries, the two most important words you can say is, I'm sorry. And if Satan would have just Turn down his pride. We wouldn't be in the muck that we're in today. Quote number eight. As he could not gain admission within the gates of heaven, you know what he would do? He would wait at the entrance to taunt the angels and seek contention with them as they went in and out. He would seek to destroy the happiness of Adam and Eve He would endeavor to incite them to rebellion, knowing that this would cause grief in heaven. If you can't hurt the person you really want to hurt, there's a saying, you hurt the ones that they love. And Satan, who couldn't hurt Christ, he couldn't hurt God, he lost the war in heaven, he determined in himself, if he couldn't hurt God and his son, what he can do is hurt Adam and Eve. And that would be his way of getting back at God. Now there's something interesting about this quote. Many times I've heard people say that Satan was still allowed admittance into heaven uh, until the cross. And that's when he was never allowed into heaven. But this quote, if you look at it, he wasn't even allowed past the gates. He couldn't go past the front gates. And what he would do is he would taunt the angels as they were coming uh, to and fro. Then we have quote number nine. Terrified by the denunciation of the... Uh, excuse me. Um, oh, this is uh, regarding, uh, this is regarding uh, Saul. The same way how Saul was rejected as king, he was rejected from king, and, and it's interesting because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Samuel removes the cloak from him as it rips, and he says, The kingdom is also ripped from you. You see Paul apologet- uh, excuse me, you see Saul apologetic. And as Saul is there and he's apologetic, many times I've asked the question, "Why doesn't God take Saul back? After all, David sinned, David messed up. and I've asked this question over and over: Why, do- why wouldn't they take Saul back? And the reason why and this leads me to my third point is Saul wasn't really repentant. He was sorry that he got caught. He was sorry that he made a mistake. Quote number seven is what I wanted to to read next. Satan trembled as he viewed his work. He was alone in meditation upon the past, the present, and his future plans. His mighty frame shook as with a tempest. An angel from heaven was passing. He called him and entreated an interview with Christ. This is This part was new to me. This was granted. So this is after the fall. He's been kicked out of heaven. He sees an angel that's flying and he says, hey, can I have a meeting with God? So the angel arranged for a meeting with God. So Satan gets his meeting with God. Listen carefully. He then related to the Son of God that he had what, everyone? Wow. Satan actually goes to the Son of God and says, I'm sorry. So then why was not he granted back into heaven? It says he was willing to take the place God had previously assigned him. And under his, wise command, uh, under his wise command, Christ wept at Satan's woe but told him as the mind of God that he could never be received into heaven. Now for me, this bothered me when I was studying this story. Saul repented, and it seemed as though God wouldn't allow him uh, a second chance. And then I looked at this quote. When I read this, I thought, why didn't God allow Satan another chance? And if you read further, and if you read The Desire of Ages, what Ellen White says is even though Satan said he's sorry, he wasn't really sorry. It's one thing to be sorry, it's another thing to be sorry you got caught. It was my sophomore year in college. It pains me to tell this story, but I, it was the last, the final exam. I was not converted, it's my economics final. I had a decent grade going into the class, but I wasn't prepared for the final. And so I remember as everyone was entering into to the big lecture hall at the University of California in Riverside to take the final exam, that I brought a cheat sheet with me. And I remember I was breathing through the final exam when all of a sudden I felt a tap on my shoulder. You know those Southwest commercials, you want to get away? (laughs) I wanted to dig my own grave at that moment. The teacher's assistant, you know, they they go up and down the aisles. Believe it or not, college students cheat in college. They were going up and down the aisles, and she had saw that I had an extra note, a cheat sheet, if you want to call it. And she said, do you want, uh, can I, can I, can I see your exam? What do you do at that moment? You give your exam, you get kicked out of school, there's my scholarship, there's everything I worked so hard for, and what do you do? At that moment, I didn't know what to do, and so I just, I was kind of sick of cheating anyways, I'd cheated for a long time, and so I gave my exam. And I remember to this day what happened, the, the head teacher, the head lecturer, she came up and she, she saw me, there were three other people, two other people who got caught cheating that day. By the way, I remember looking back and I saw my entire fraternity, I was part of a fraternity, they were all cheating off each other, I could see them all cheating off each other. And I'm like, why did I get caught? <laughs> Make the long story short, me getting caught was actually one of the best things that happened to me. It actually started the conversion experience, the conversion process. But I remember when the teacher's assistant she came up to me and she, she said, "You know, Michael, you've disappointed me. I'm sad that you, that I have to do this. I'm sad that I have to flunk you," which was grace in its, of itself, because if she had reported me to the chancellor, I'd have been kicked out of the school. Uh, there's a zero tolerance, no cheating, at the University of California. And so at that time, I, I remember. Uh, But I'd never gotten anything lower than a a B-minus at that time, my entire grade school, entire college. And she said, I'm going to have to flunk you, you're going to take this over again. And as I remember getting caught, I remember I said I was sorry and um, all of these other things. But looking back at that experience, I wasn't sorry that I cheated on the exam. I was sorry that I got caught. And the reason why I know that is because another exam came, and even though I got caught, I cheated again. It wasn't until the transforming grace of God changed my life that now I knew that I was accountable to God. And in this story of of Lucifer who becomes Satan, what we see here, when he goes up to God and he asks to be reinstated to office, he's not sorry. He's sorry he lost. There's a big difference. In the story of Saul, we see this as well, and Ellen White brings this out later in Saul's life. She says, Saul was not sorry. When When he goes to Samuel and says, I'm sorry that I messed up. I'm sorry that I spared King Agag. He wasn't sorry. He was sorry that he got caught. I don't know where you all are in your walk with God, We're all sinners. We know that. But when we repent, why do we repent? Do we repent because it has broken the heart of God? Or do we repent because we got caught? Because it disappointed someone? Quote number nine, we have Saul in his story. I have to wrap up in the next few minutes. Terrified by the denunciation of the prophet, Saul acknowledged his guilt. So, see, we see Saul, same thing, which he had before stubbornly denied. But he still persisted in casting blame upon the people, declaring that he had, uh, he had sinned through fear of them. Then Ellen White says this It was not sorrow for sin, but fear of its penalty. That actuated the king of Israel. It was not the sorrow of sin that brought Lucifer into this one on one meeting with God. It was sorrow that he no longer was the covering cherub. It was sorrow for not having the benefits. It goes on, and Ellen White continues to say it was his chief anxiety to maintain his authority. And retain the allegiance of the people. You know, beloved, it only takes a little time and pressure to reveal who we really are. It only took a little bit of time and pressure for the great controversy to reveal Satan's nefarious nature. And just like the controversy brought between uh, between Saul and David brought out the true diabolical nature of Saul. How many of you know this man? And it's a very difficult pronunciation, so I'm sure I'm going to slaughter it. Yosef Joygoshvili. Anyone know who he is? Yosef Joygoshvili. And I'm probably slaughtering it. It's Russian. Anyone know who he is? I did some research last night, and I typed up, The evilest men in history, the most evil men in history. And as I looked up, there were several lists. There was a top 10 list, a top 25 list, different websites, different newspapers. Every list that I looked at had him as the worst man in history. Hitler was number three. He was number one. Maybe you might know him by his other name, Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin murdered over 20 million people. That number could be as high as 60 million. His own son got imprisoned by the Germans, and the Germans tried to negotiate, saying they would give him his son in exchange for prisoners, and he refused and said, that loser got caught. People feared him so much that when they lay dying, no doc- uh, when he lay dying, Joseph Stalin, was about, uh, when he was uh, laying, uh, about to die, no doctor would prescribe Anything, any treatment, because they were afraid that if he died after any kind of treatment, they would blame him. Here's the thing that we don't understand about, many of you might not know about Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin entered the seminary to be an orthodox priest. He loved to ice skate. He had an organic garden. Did you know that? So what happened? How did Yosef Jogashvili become Joseph Stalin? Robert Duvall, who played him in the 1992 film Joseph Stalin, was trying to find what what clicked, what made him go from uh, a young boy who had boyish dreams and uh, was innocent and just like any other boy, loved to hang out and have fun. And what many have said was his love for power changed Joseph Joy Gavali to Joseph Stalin. It's interesting what pride and power can do to us. And I submit to you all that there's a little bit of Joseph Stalin in all of us. At least the potential to be like him. All of us are capable of doing the most horrific crimes and sins. As Martin Luther said, we have nails in our pockets. The three points that I want to end with this evening is number one, that we all have that tendency. That we all have that little bit of Joseph Stone lying dormant in our hearts. Number two, power and pride can turn a shy, mild tempered Saul into the maddened, melancholy monster that he became. And number two, three, let not the secret things be revealed until the right time. As humans, we want to know God's will. And what I'm finding is God's plan is to put us in a constant place of not knowing what's next. So, we can learn to trust Him each moment. This process of trusting in God alleviates or neutralizes that desire for pride and power and continues to crucify the flesh. I don't know where we all are in our walk. I don't know where you are, but I know where I am. And I know that constantly God is putting me at crossroads. Every day there's a decision to make, every month, every year. There's big decisions and small decisions. And we hear that statement all the time, to be like Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus in position and benefits? Because, beloved, Satan wanted to be like Jesus. We sing the song, Be Like Jesus, all day long. But do we know what it means? Have we counted the cost of what it means to be like Jesus? Because if you want to be like Jesus in position and power, you have the capabilities to be like Saul and like Joseph Stalin. My appeal is that we would would be like Jesus, but not in position and benefit, but in character and humility. How many of you in this room... You understand the great need that you and I have for Jesus. That you understand that in your heart is lying a killer, a murderer. And that you have the potential for committing atrocious crimes without Jesus daily sanctifying your heart. How many of us in this room, we first want to realize that that's who we really are. That's our true condition. And second of all, how many of us we want to commit to being like Jesus? But not in position and power. But in humility and character. If that's your desire, raise your hand. Praise God. Precious Father, we come before you thanking you for this little time that we had to study. Thanking you for the spirit of prophecy. And as we look at the life of Lucifer and how he was turned into the adversary or Satan, how we look at Saul, how he turned from a shy, hiding behind others into a maddened, power-hungry melancholy, we look at our lives and we realize there's a little bit of Saul, a little bit of Joseph Stalin, in all of us we ask that you rid us of selfishness of pride of arrogancy and that when we say be like jesus that we will want to be like you in character in the way that you live your life that we will daily pick up our cross we pray that we will not make the mistake of being like jesus in position but in humility That is what we ask for, God. You saw the hands that were raised. We ask that as we continue on with this service, as we acknowledge you as the great I am, that we will see you as our Savior, our life, our Redeemer, our all, our everything. Thank you, God, for answering this prayer, for changing us even now. In the name of Jesus, we pray.